Good morning and welcome. This morning we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 5. And as we look at the remainder of this chapter, we'll see that it contains a number of examples of various points of the Old Testament law. Jesus takes each of the examples and he gives us the basic Old Testament wording or the accepted uh, interpretation and understanding of that point of the law. And Jesus then opens that up and he starts to give us a glimpse of what God's intent behind that part of the law was. Uh, it gives us what God's attitude is and his desire and expectation for us regarding that issue. Like I mentioned last time, this isn't Jesus setting a target that we can actually achieve. It's him establishing the fact that we can't possibly meet God's moral standards. We cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven by our own actions. And so today we're going to explore the purpose of the law and why Jesus used the examples that he did. So I'm going to read uh, starting Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 20, and I'm going to read through to verse 28. The Bible says, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. As we continue to look at this passage, I think it's important for us to keep in mind who it is that Jesus is talking to at this time. Uh, if you remember, leading up to this, we see that Jesus has been traveling from town to town. He's healing people, preaching repentance in the synagogues, and he's acquired a large crowd of followers. And he's also selected a group of disciples uh, that he is, brings in, and he's a little closer to them and starts to teach them and give them further explanations. So now he's situated himself on the hillside, surrounded by this multitude, and he begins to preach. And then we come to this statement in verse 20. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now this sounds like a very definitive statement that Jesus makes. He's establishing a baseline by which people could evaluate their own level of righteousness. 
This baseline, however, isn't the bar that you have to get over and then you're okay. It's a bar that even when you achieve this level, he says you're not there yet. As in, you still need to do better if you expect to get into the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, is why use the scribes and Pharisees as a reference point if even they aren't good enough? Well, that really is the point. Even they aren't good enough. So to understand why Jesus would use the scribes and Pharisees, we need to understand what their reputation was among the people of Jesus' day. And their reputation was that they kept the law perfectly. They were absolutely fanatical about it. Later on in the book of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is dealing directly with that group, uh, Jesus uses their fanaticism to point out what was missing and what they were doing wrong. In chapter 23, verse 23 of the book of Matthew, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, Ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, He says they're so careful in obeying the law right to the letter that when the Bible says to give a tithe of all their possessions, they take it to the extreme and measure out a tenth of even of the smallest items like their spices to give as a tithe. And Paul, the apostle who wrote nearly half of our New Testament, started out as Saul, the Pharisee. When writing to the Philippian church, He used his past experience as part of the strictest sect of the Jewish religion to make a point. And in describing himself, he makes a point that if anyone could have trusted in their own righteousness based on keeping the law, he could. In Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He calls himself blameless regarding the law. He kept the law to the letter. He even uses the fact that he was a Pharisee to describe how perfectly he had obeyed the law, and then he restates it again in the next verse for emphasis. Paul's point wasn't that he had gained salvation through keeping the law, but rather that even though he was a meticulous Pharisee in the way that he kept the law, he still needed Christ. And he he describes all of his own righteousness as worthless, as dung. This is what Jesus is referring to in our text in Matthew chapter 5. He used the the scribes and the Pharisees because from a human perspective, nobody could find flaw in them. They couldn't do better than what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing in regards to keeping the Old Testament law. They were considered, if you use a statement uh, as the gold standard of the Jewish religion. 
Notice how Paul points out his family tree in the description of being able to trust in his flesh. And he says, if anybody could, he could. And he says, he's of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is exactly the point that John the Baptist was making when he was addressing the Pharisees early on in Matthew chapter 3. They believed that being able to trace their family tree back to which tribe they were from had some kind of merit that gave them an advantage, that placed God's favor on them, and that God owed them his favor because of the covenant he had made with Abraham all those years ago. Now Paul had been one of those Pharisees who had trusted in what he called later in Galatians 4 verse 9, weak and beggarly elements. So as we think about this, seeing or rather hearing Jesus say that you have to do better than the scribes and Pharisees to get into the kingdom of heaven, these people must have been about to ask, who then can be saved? Just as he was asked that in Matthew chapter 19, uh, when he was dealing with the rich man that came and asked what he must do to be saved. And after Jesus' answer to sell all that he had and to give to the poor. And in, when he goes away sorrowful, Jesus describes a rich man as it's almost impossible for them to get into heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And the disciples ask him that exact question. He says, who then can be saved? They're looking at this guy. He was a good man. He was keeping the law. It was hard for them to imagine how anybody could be saved if this person couldn't be. It's beginning to seem impossible. To be more righteous than a Pharisee? How could they possibly do that? So as Jesus continues to speak, in the next few verses, he points out, and the passage that we read, he just points out two of the Ten Commandments. And on the surface, these seem like two of the easiest commandments for the average person to keep. First one was, thou shalt not kill or commit murder. And the second one is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, adultery and fornication have become accepted as a normal in our society, and people think you're strange if you remain a virgin until you get married. And it's a big deal if you remain married to just one person until death do us part. But it wasn't always like that. In many cultures, it's still unthinkable to take part in a physical relationship with someone outside of marriage. And the Jewish culture of Jesus' day was no exception to that. So for most of the people in the crowd, chances are that they all would have thought that they had kept those two commandments. I'm sure that's exactly the reason Jesus brings them up. Jesus is about to crack open these two commandments in such a way that not one person standing in the crowd could claim to have kept them, not even a Pharisee. <clears throat> in verses 21 to 24, Jesus gives the commandment in the way that they all knew it and understood it. Thou shalt not kill. 
and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. No problem. Go ask someone on the street if they're a good person. And most, the most common answer you're going to get is, well, I haven't killed anyone. Most of the people in the world could honestly say that they've never killed anyone. So Jesus elaborates here and tells them that, that if, if they've ever been angry with their brother, they've essentially committed murder in their heart. Well, that just changed the answer from almost nobody having broken the commandment to now almost everybody had broken it. If you ever grew up with a sibling, you've probably wished them dead more than on one occasion. And that's not even what Jesus said. He said, if you're angry, uh, he said angry without a cause. But when we get angry at our siblings, um, there's often very little cause behind most of that anger. Chances are you've committed mental murder almost every time you get in your car to go into town. There's inevitably going to be some idiot out there that doesn't know how to drive. How about going to the grocery store and the clerk that doesn't know how to do their job, that can't even do simple math to give you change when you hand them that extra nickel after they've punched in the amount? How many of us have criticized the way the police handled the situation in Nova Scotia this past week? Could we have done better? Sure, in hindsight, we know what should have been done. But you can be certain that the police force in that town never expected to be facing this kind of situation in their community, ever. Jesus says in verse 22, Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Those specific words don't need to be coming out of our mouth for us to have the intent of them. Um, we're all guilty. As Jesus describes this, knowing that he has just made everyone guilty of breaking this commandments, he gives them a means of dealing with this particular form of sin. The next few verses talks about bringing a gift or a sacrifice to the altar and leaving it there and then righting the wrong between you and another person before making the offering. This makes me think of our time of communion and what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding taking it unworthily. In verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. This idea of examine yourself before taking part is very much like what Jesus says in Matthew five twenty-three and 24, saying, Therefore, if, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest thy brother has aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. When we approach God with the offering for sin, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we should not take it lightly, and we shouldn't be harboring sin in our hearts. Particularly in this instance, hatred or anger between you and a brother. Jesus says to leave the offering before the altar 
and go make right whatever is wrong that needs to be corrected. From reading 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin, I would take it to be suggesting the same course of action. Jesus said to leave the offering at the altar. For us, that would mean we should leave the bread and the cup until such a time that we've been able to go and deal with whatever relationship issues that we have that need to get fixed or any other sin that needs to be dealt with in our lives. Jesus now moves to this other commandment that most in the crowd probably would have said that they had kept. That's adultery. He takes this to the same place as he did concerning murder, right to the heart. In verse 28, he says, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Just because a culture frowns on the act of adultery doesn't change what goes on in people's hearts and minds. The lust, the desire, and imagination is still there, whether we act on it or not. And it is there. In our minds and hearts, that sin is committed. When Jesus was discussing another issue of the law regarding clean and unclean foods, he makes this point. Uh, It's in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. In other words, God knows what's in our hearts and he judges according to our thoughts, not just our outward actions, as the Pharisees assumed. Again, in Matthew 23, verse 23, where Jesus pointed out how precisely the Pharisees kept the finest points of the law, he continued speaking. He says, You have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These are issues of the heart, not outward actions. And Jesus continually dealt with this throughout his entire ministry. Sin isn't just our outward actions. It's, uh, it's even more a part of who we are. It's what we think, our attitudes, our, our thoughts towards others. So with just these two commandments, Jesus makes it very clear that even the Pharisees, with all of their law-keeping rituals, haven't kept the law according to God's standards. None of us have, and none of us ever could. And it isn't until a person comes to the conclusion that they can't keep God's laws to God's standards that we're ready to receive the solution to the problem. That is to put our complete trust in the one who did keep God's laws to to God's standards and took God's wrath for our sin on him, that we could be saved by grace through faith in him. No, we can't be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, and that is the whole point of what Jesus is saying. 
We can't enter into the kingdom of heaven on our own. It's impossible without Christ. And this, by the way, is a great way of sharing the gospel with others. It is Jesus' way. Perhaps we should follow his example. That is, don't just tell people the solution that you need Jesus. That's like telling someone on an airplane that they should put on a parachute because it will make their flight better. No, you first need to explain to them, make them realize that this plane is going to crash and that the parachute is the only thing that's going to keep them alive. People need to first understand what God's standards are and then see that they can't meet them. When they know that the plane is going to crash, then they're going to understand why they need the parachute. When they understand God's standards are stricter than anything they could ever achieve, then and only then are they ready to receive the solution, the sacrifice that Jesus offered in himself in their place. People that don't know that the plane is crashing don't want to wear the parachute. But once you know, then you can't take that parachute away from them, even if you tried. And that is exactly how it is with Christianity. And that is exactly the method Jesus used to reach people's hearts. He used the law first, and then he offered the solution. Thank you for joining me today. Hope to hope you join me again next week. Thank you.